This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, it's Tech Talk, and I'm Frida Liu. At the furthest reaches of science, things start to get very strange indeed. And this is why Matt Armitage is back with stories about soft drinks, relationship advice, and personal hygiene. So, Matt, I do miss these sessions. I'm so glad to be seeing to you again. But where is our weird journey taking us this week? Hey, Frida. Well, you know, last week we spoke about hybrid retail. We talked about the way that it's uh, reshaping the way that we experience the things that we buy. And this first story actually links to that. But um, first of all, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Um, okay. Roughly how much coffee do you drink or other forms of caffeine do you kind of consume in a day? I'm a good two cups of coffee. Okay, that's not that's not too bad. Um, now, I, I mentioned last week that I used to have something of a, a doom shopping problem, you know, browsing mm. in bed, buying stupid things late at night. In fact, I found myself doing it last night and had to deliberately <laughs> make myself stop. And I can't even remember any of the things that I was looking at. So it was probably a good thing. Um, I don't drink caffeine, with the exception of um, uh, eating uh, dark chocolate. And uh, if you aren't eating chocolate with no sugar and 100% cocoa, then you're not doing it right. Um, but I stopped taking caffeine years ago, um, partly because, you know, those those sci-fi movies where someone's given a stimulant and the, the screen kind of goes all weird. It looks like <laughs> the character's rushing down a tunnel. That's how I feel right. just drinking decaf coffee let alone <laughs> anything stronger. I mean, I'm just rubbish. Uh, but it looks like not drinking caffeine might have saved my wallet a fortune. So uh, a recent study published in the Journal of Marketing suggests that consuming caffeine before or during shopping increases your risk of impulse buying. Oh, yeah. So, okay. uh, of course, those measures of caffeine, they don't just include coffee. So tea, energy drinks, as I said, chocolate for me. Uh, the study was less, uh, led by Dipayan Biswas, a professor of marketing at the University of South Florida. And the team there concluded that people are likely to spend 50% more money and buy up to a third more items if they consume caffeine before or during shopping. Okay, how rigorous was the study? Okay, this wasn't some grad student <laughs> hanging around outside a 7-Eleven at midnight on a Saturday night. I mean, you know, that is the definition of impulse buying. Um, in the first phase, um, which was a, a physical retail component, researchers set up espresso machines and they gave out free drinks to more than 300 participating shoppers at uh, a couple of retail stores, one in France and one in Spain. Half of the participants were given coffee, the other half were given water or decaf. And I think the participants were random. They were just shoppers who came to the store on that day and they agreed to mm. share the receipts from their shopping trip. In the second phase, which covered online shopping, uh, they used 200 business school students. Um, half of them had avoided caffeine all day. The second half just, you know, consumed as normal. They were then asked to select purchases from a list of uh, 66 items that they would buy online. And the results from both groups were 
pretty much the same. Right. Okay. Were there differences in the type of goods bought by the two groups? Well, yeah, it wasn't just the amount, the amount of money spent and the number of items bought that were different. Uh, it, it seems to be linked to the way caffeine stimulates our nervous systems because caffeine, it heightens our senses. It makes us feel more alert. It gives us a dopamine rush. I mean, these are the reasons that, you know, most people drink it. Uh, obviously, it makes me feel like I'm having a psychedelic science fiction experience, so I don't. Um, but that rush can, in turn, increase our impulsivity and decrease our levels of self-control. So the control groups that stayed away from caffeine, they either completed their purchases as they had originally intended, or they you know, bought items that were kind of more practical. The caffeinated groups would buy those things on impulse rather than need. Um, so yeah, it's quite it's quite amazing. It's a, quite astounding. It is right? quite astounding. I'm going through like the n- number of purchases that I've made and the coffee I would have drank before. Yeah, okay. so if you know, if That's you are out shopping, have your coffee at the end when you finish shopping rather than before or halfway through. Now, um we're going to stick with senses for the next story. I don't know how many of our listeners know the Monty Python sketch about the funniest joke in the world, which uh, was my dog has no nose. How does he smell? Terrible. Um, so I'm going to ask you another question, um, and it might seem a little bit odd, but what do your friends smell like? Well, they smell nice, otherwise they wouldn't be my friends. Well, exactly, and that's a that's a really kind of telling answer. And I know it sounds like a weird question, but it's mm. not completely random. So last week during the hybrid retail show, I mentioned the way that brands use signature smells as one of the defining factors of their stores. So things like that cookie dough smell you get at uh, famous Mm. Amos, for example, or signature scents that are used by some beauty and wellness brands. So it's always the same when you walk into the stores. Smell plays a much stronger part in our lives than a lot of us realize or recognize. So when I asked you what your friends smell like, it wasn't in a creepy weirdo. Well, I mean, you know, it's me. But well, you, you know, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, new research by the Weissman Institute of Science in Israel suggests that smell plays an important part in the way we build friendships, and that we're more hmm. likely to form friendships with people who smell like us. Which means, when you said that your friends are all people who smell nice, that you smell nice right. too. It still sounds creepy. I know it kind of comes across as though it's uh, some kind of, you know, garlic lovers appreciation society, but it it seems to be much deeper and a lot more primal. Now, um, I found this story on The New Scientist, by the way. Uh, Inbal Ravabi of the Wiseman Institute was interested in why we form those sudden strong relationships with people, you know, people you feel you instantly click with. And she wondered, (laughs) perfectly naturally, if it had anything to do with body odor, um, because she knew that previous research had found evidence that we subconsciously sniff people when we meet them. Okay. Um, You know, we might do something like sniffing our hand, apparently. I mean, I've never noticed. Do we do do things like that? I don't, but but you know, like the whole thing about pheromones, yeah. and, and uh, I suppose, right? Yeah, I, I guess. No, I, mean, I don't sniff my hair. Yeah, the Israeli team recruited sort of twenty pairs of um, same-sex friends who said that they had clicked in their friendships in this way. So they chose ten male pairs, ten female pairs, and they then used an electronic nose. That's something we've talked about on the shows 
before, they used an electronic nose to sniff clothing that had been worn by each subject. And as a control, they randomly reassigned the pairs and then repeated the tests. So the results of the analysis showed that the friend pairs smelled more alike than when they just did random pairings. So they took this hypothesis, they recruited 17 further subjects who hadn't met each other before, and they put them again in same-sex groups, and they took turns playing a non-verbal games. And the results turned out the same. Participants tended to click with people who smelled more like them. Now, I know it all does sound very strange, but the study builds on previous research that suggests each of us has a set of social fingerprints that guides right. us in forming our friendships and relationships with people. Hmm. Okay, so like a signature genetic rulebook. Yeah, I mean, without going into it too deeply, if you are interested in this subject, there's a great article on the New Scientist website by the evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar. It's titled The Hidden Rules That Determine Which Friendships Matter to Us. And I've said before, New Scientist really has to work better at its headlines. Um, in it, he discusses <laughs> concepts like our, our ceiling limit for friendships. Um, you know, a lot of us know about that, that thing about you know, we have a limit, a natural limit of about 150 people as friendships. That concept's been around for a while. It's also known as the Dunbar number. So he's the guy who gave his name to that. And it includes things like the 30-minute effect, that uh, friendships work best when you don't have to travel more than 30 minutes to meet yeah. that person socially. Um, you know, I'm about an hour away from most people, so that probably explains Hence. my social circle. Uh, but by and large, Dunbar's research shows that our friends are generally very similar to us in terms of gender, education, outlook, interests. Uh, we have shared hobbies and interests with them. We tend to have mm. the same kind of sense of humor. That also explains my social circle. Um Interestingly, um, in it, you see quite a few of the ingredients that have helped to build the echo chamber effect on social media over the past few years. Right, because we're, right. we're shocked when other people don't think or see things like we do, because all the people and information that social media exposes us to echo our beliefs and our standpoint. And now we can also add smell to that list of, of things. Um, do you want a, another smell-related story? <laughs> Why not, if you have one? Okay, this one is actually very relevant for us in Malaysia. So according to researchers at the Tsinghua University in China, people who have had mosquito-borne diseases like dengue and Zika are more likely mm. to be bitten by mosquitoes in the future. So right. it's been known for a while that diseases like malaria alter our body odor. Uh, the malaria parasites mm -hmm. trigger a change in the body odor that attracts mosquitoes who then carry the parasites and infect other people they bite. So it's a propagation method. The Singwa team right. wanted to see if the same was true for diseases like Zika and Dengue. Right. And do you know which compounds seem to attract the mosquitoes? Yes. Yeah, so the research team first tested the hypothesis with mice infected with both, uh, well, with either Zika or Dengue. I mean, you wouldn't give them both. Compared with a, a control group without the diseases, uh, they found that those with the viruses were actually twice as likely to be bitten by mosquitoes. So they analysed all the compounds that they found on the skin of the mice. And then they did the same tests with a group of human subjects as well, some of whom had 
had either of the viruses and, of course, some of whom hadn't. They then isolated all of the compounds they found and tested them individually by, again, uh, using mice and putting them on the, the backs of human hands. And the compound that most seemed to attract the mozzies was a thing called acetophenone, which uh, seems to be more prevalent in people who've had the disease. It, it wasn't so much that they were surprised by the result. I think they were expecting to find something like this. They were surprised that they were able to isolate a single compound that attracts these flying vampires. So that's kind of a, a major breakthrough. Right. Okay, now how does this help us reduce the risk of people being bitten in the future? Well, of course, the, the next step is to find ways to reduce the production of uh, acetophenone. Why do I give myself words? I can't say. Um, <laughs> early indications from the Chinese team are that a common acne medication called, and I can't say this either, uh, isotretinoin, uh, which causes the body to increase uh, production of antimicrobial peptides. Um, now, peptides are the strings of amino acids. Um, isotretinoin, by stimulating the production of the body's antimicrobial defenses, suppresses that production of acetophenone. And their tests showed that subjects treated with the drug were no more likely to be bitten by mosquitoes than anybody else. So, like I said, that's good news for, for people in Malaysia. Right, right. Again, and after this, we'll be talking about a crypto fugitive and a racist robot. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Banish feudal mentality. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. You're listening to Matt's Plane, Matt Armitage from culturepop.com. What have we discussed earlier? We talked about smells. We talked about coffee. We talked about mozzies. Well, tell me, are we done with the smell-related stories, Pretty Matt? much. Um, this next one takes us into the exciting world of gut biomes. Um, I imagine they smell too, but we don't have to explore that today. Um, although I did read a story this week that sh said we should be preserving our poop uh, so that okay. when we're older, we can use it for fecal transplants as a way to update and reset our gut flora. Yeah, quite interesting. Um, and I, I read another story that suggested that fecal transplants can alleviate the symptoms of conditions like IBS for up to three years. And it, it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, that is so unique to us. And at the same time, maybe remove the ones that weren't very helpful. Well, yeah, exactly. And in um, previous instances with um, fecal transplants. You see, I'm getting far more into it than I promised I would. Um, but it, it's been noted that people who've had the transplants have actually imported diseases from the other person. So not only have you, uh, you've solved one condition, but you might have increased your risk of obesity or heart disease because the person who donated has those risks. So right. it's better to, to use your own. Anyway, I'm going to keep it sanitary from now on. Uh, I found this story on uh, IFL Science. 
intermittent fasting has emerged as one of the most popular weight control methods over the past few years. Uh, the idea behind it is that, you know, we limit our consumption of calories to certain windows of time. So, for example, we do all our eating within eight hours a day. It's been shown it can help us to lose weight, but it also brings a whole host of health benefits, including reducing the risk of some cancers uh, and also reducing the risk of some metabolic diseases. So there are lots of variations on intermittent fasting, right. but that's, you know, a sort of basic overview. A new study published in the journal Nature suggests that intermittent fasting could also help us to heal damaged nerves. Wow. Okay. So what treatments do we currently have for nerve damage? Well, pretty much none. I mean, that's why we always hear that horrible phrase, permanent nerve damage. You know, we hear that so often. The only method is surgical reconstruction of the nerves. Now, that's only possible for certain nerve endings, and it has a relatively small success for it. Uh, this study was done by Imperial College London, and it took previous findings that intermittent fasting aided things like wound repair, and it stimulated the growth of new neurons. Uh, the discovery is linked to a metabolite in our gut called 3-indoleprocrionic acid. <laughs> I did that one fine. Known as IPA. And this is something that we uh, produce naturally. And this metabolite is crucial in regenerating axons. Those are the tendril-like strands that are at the end of the nerve cells that send out the electric signals from the nerve and basically communicate with the rest of the body. Right. Intermittent fasting or IF for those in the know. So, okay, anyway, but in a sense, you could think of nerve damage a bit like turning the internet off. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to make this more techie. Um, you know, you can think of it a little bit like that. So in the sense that all the websites are still there, they're sitting there on their servers, but without the internet to connect them, you know, they're, they're not much use, they're just isolated. So the question then becomes, how can we get more IPA into our bodies? Now, I know that IPA is also a beer, that route is not going to work <laughs> for people. But one way is to stimulate our own natural production of IPA. So exercise is one way and intermittent fasting seems to be another. In uh, tests on mice, the Imperial College team found that uh, those that were put on a time-restricted diet regenerated axons, uh, again, those nerve endings, at a 50% higher rate than mice whose diets weren't restricted. So the next step, of course, is to move towards uh, human clinical trials. And the team thinks that as our knowledge of gut flora expands, we will also find other bacteria or metabolites that will help to protect and heal the body in the same way that IPA does. Right. Okay. Now you can do AI now, otherwise we're likely to go somewhere really unpleasant. Okay, so on a completely different topic, uh, again, this is from New Scientist, um, an algorithm has claimed to, uh, well, obviously the algorithm hasn't claimed itself, but the researchers have claimed that an <laughs> algorithm is uh, able to predict where and when crimes are likely to take place with an accuracy rate of 90%. So, you know, it's very minority report sounding, right. and we know how well things turned out in that movie. Um, but 
predicting crime is not just big business. You know, it's one of those unicorns of modern policing. And we've covered attempts to use AI in policing a few times over the years. And so far, the results haven't really been great. Um, Police and probation service AIs have an unpleasant tendency to amplify systemic biases, usually racial biases. Um, There was the example, I think, a few years ago of a, a US probation service AI that would indicate that risks of recidivism were higher simply if you lived in a traditionally black neighborhood. And okay, and that will be irrespective of the uh, criminal background. Yeah, um, so someone convicted of a minor first offense could be signaled at greater risk of repeat offending just because they lived in a black neighborhood. And they would be considered more of a risk than someone with multiple more serious offenses who lived in a traditionally white neighborhood. Um, We've also talked about the AI-based facial recognition system that the London's Met Police had to abandon after it created multiple false positive suspect identifications for black men and women. Um, the wow. Yeah, the New Scientist... Sexist and racist. Sexist okay. and racist, yeah. The New Scientist article flags a Chicago police system that aimed to predict who would be most likely to be involved in a shooting, either as a victim or a perpetrator. The data it was based on was initially withheld. After the city was forced to reveal it, it turned out that 50 6% of the city's black men aged 20 to 29 <laughs> were on the list. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's quite astonishing. So <laughs> this, this new system is also based on data from Chicago. It's the work of a team at the University of Chicago. I'd like to see the composi- composition of that team. So is this a live model or a historical one? Well, it was trained and developed using historical data from 2014 to 2016. Um, but the idea is uh, for it to become, if not a street-level predictive tool, then at least one that can inform citywide strategies and priorities. So it is heading for that live prediction model. In the model, the city was divided into squares that are roughly 300 meters across. And it predicted where certain crimes were likely to be committed a week in advance. <laughs> I mean, it's quite amazing. Um, that's <laughs> Thanks for the yeah, notice. Um, okay, that, anyway. That's the difference, I think, between this and a lot of previous systems, because it targets locations rather than individuals. And they then widened the, uh, the test. Seven cities were analysed in the same way, and the results were very similar, which suggests that the tool is capable of adapting to the different policing requirements of diverse towns and cities. But, and there is a caveat, the authors do mm. note that the model is likely to repeat or reflect biases in the initial data sets. So, Typically, why do we see these biases? Well, I mean, that would that would be a whole series of episodes if I had to explain that fully. But in the facial recognition system example, a lot of the early facial recognition systems were trained using commercial photo data sets, which overwhelmingly skew white and male. So the systems, or at least those early ones, uh, had a lot of data to build up a picture of the differences between different faces as long as they were white and male faces. (laughs) Uh, So the accuracy rate drops off precipitously for anyone who's not white and male. Now, I I don't usually interrupt one story with another, but um, researchers at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta recently published a study on the results 
of biases. They built a virtual robot that was running uh, a neural network from OpenAI called Clip. Um, and it should also be noted that OpenAI flagged Clip in a 2021 audit for being susceptible to bias. Okay, how susceptible did the research team in Atlanta find it to be? Um, as as a white male, um, a little worrying might be the way I'd describe right. it to anyone who isn't a white male. Potentially terrifying. The, the, the robot was trained with images of people, so there were different genders, different ethnicities. Its task was to answer questions and respond by putting the people it thought most likely to represent the answer into certain boxes. So black men were 10% more likely to be selected when the command was pack the criminal in a box. Um, Latina right. and black women were its preference when the question was identify homemakers. And the system also favored men over women when asked to identify doctors. Okay, so don't questions like that provoke bias? Uh, of course, and that was the point. Um, the researchers were looking to exploit and identify the areas of bias. Ideally, you want a system where the data set is normalized to discourage those biases, or you want a system that's smart enough to realize that the results are being skewed, or that the question it's being offered is designed to mm. elicit a biased outcome. Okay, going back to the Chicago crime model, wouldn't data that's based in the police's own records be more accurate? Well, you'd kind of think so, but not necessarily. So the New Scientist article quotes um, Lawrence Sherman, who's an expert on uh, policing from the Cambridge Centre of uh, Evidence-Based Policing. And he points out the difference between reactive and proactive data. Or to put it another way, that's the difference between somebody reporting crime and police going mm. out and actively looking for it. So um, when we have those kind of zero crime policies where police target neighborhoods and clamp down on any and all violations in those zones, no matter how minor, that would be an example of uh, proactive policing. So a location-based system like that would potentially be open to bias simply because police are already concentrating their efforts and attention on that particular area. So it records a, a higher level of crimes. In this instance, though, the team has admitted that the tool has the potential to be biased, as I said. Um, but because of that, it can actually be used to expose and overcome those biases. For example, they discovered in their analysis of the Chicago data that crimes committed in wealthy areas were more likely rather to result in arrests than crimes committed in poor neighborhoods. And that could potentially indicate that police devote more resources to solving crimes committed against richer residents of the city. Right. And what would you like to end with? Well, we might as well stick with uh, crime. Um, this is the news that uh, Ruja uh, Ignatova, why am I getting all these names today? Um, she's also known as the Crypto Queen, has been added to the FBI's list of 10 most wanted fugitives. Now, if you don't know her backstory, um, Ignatova is or was involved with a Bulgaria-based proto-cryptocurrency called OneCoin that U.S. prosecutors allege is at the center of a $4 billion fraud. So after becoming a global celebrity in the uh, 20s, Ignatova disappeared from view in 2017 and was charged in the U.S. in uh, absentia in 2019. Now, in the criminal probe into the company, a corporate lawyer called Mark Scott has already been found guilty by a Manhattan court of laundering 
$400 million. And they've described OneCoin as one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in history. So what was OneCoin, a pump and dump scheme? Well, I mean, we've seen a lot of these kind of um, pump and dump cryptocurrencies. I think there was one based on uh, Squid Games that came out in uh, 2021. Mm. But it seems that this was far more elaborate. The coin itself was never launched. The company used multi-level marketing techniques to sell its products. They recruited sellers. They set up networks. And those sellers sold, if I remember correctly, not the coin, but training courses. And the training courses came with tokens that could be converted into one coin when it launched. So the entire story is actually really incredible. There's a great podcast called The Missing Crypto Queen that was produced by the BBC, I think, in 2020. It's well worth a listen if you're into the whole kind of true crime genre or anything related to crypto and blockchain. As I said, Ignatova has been missing since 2017 when she boarded a flight from Bulgaria to Greece uh, after learning that her boyfriend was cooperating with the uh, FBI investigation into OneCoin. Now, the FBI only puts people on its most wanted list when they actually believe the public can help to bring that person to justice. So that might suggest that she's resurfaced somewhere and that they have leads suggesting where she might be. So we might soon get the season two of The Missing Crypto Queen, which I guess will be found, the found Crypto Queen. (laughs) And if you see her in Malaysia, please make a point to just, you know, point them out as well. This has been fascinating. As always, Matt, I enjoy these conversations and I've learned a lot about smells and coffee and what have you. Or you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at Culture Matt, and that's K-U-L-T-U-R-M-A-T-T, or subscribe to the Culture Pop newsletter on Substack for more information about these shows. I'll see you next week, Matt. Thanks, Frida. See you soon. BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.